Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 74.5, Retro Magic 50 Rewinds and Recaps. So we're going to be taking you back just two weeks ago. Uh, where we held our Retro Magic event at Walt Disney World. So I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me, as always, uh, on this evening, uh, we've recovered. But uh, Mr. How Bowers, you drove back, you made it through Champions Gate, you're home, you've cruised, and you're relaxing. <laughs> Aloha, Hoahela. Yes, yes, we were back. At, yeah, I went, on a, I went on a Disney cruise, which is like an actual vacation. Yeah, except our, instead of that. our working vacation that we had a few weeks ago. So. Yes, exactly. So that was, that yeah. was lovely. But uh, we had a great time, great great time, and we had a great time at our event Absolutely. too. So, and coming from Ohio, Mr. J.T. Couser, who Spirit Airlines gave him a ruckus or quite a flight coming down, arriving at three thirty a.m. to Orlando. Uh, so, if your window shook at three thirty a.m. from an aircraft in the local area, it was J.T. flying in that day, and you got home okay on Frontier. Yeah, no problems coming home. We were good. Uh, it was a, it was a good weekend though. It was like a whirlwind though. Like it the was. Next thing I knew, I was back on a plane heading home. And I had to be at work in the next morning. So that's right. And uh, yeah, I recovered. Uh, it took me about a week to get rehydrated after my uh, Sunday night <laughs> mishap of feeling <laughs> horrible, and then I soldiered through the Magic Kingdom and the parks with you guys on Monday. So. Yeah, yeah, you made it through. Made it. And coming in from the city of brotherly love tonight, Mister Brian P. Miles. How's it going, Brian? Uh, greetings and salutations, and for those who attended Retro Magic, gratitude. Yes. Much, much gratitude. It was a long weekend. It was a fun weekend, and uh, I also have to thank not only you guys, but I think we need to thank all the volunteers, too many to name, but they really helped pull this weekend off. That was really important, so I'll make sure we get that said here at the top of the show from uh, you know Jason and Yvonne and Gary uh, my family, I mean, you name it, the Miles family. We had so many people doing different things from audio and video and checking people in and checking people out and uh, it really just helped put us put stuff into the storage unit and helped build Ikea cabinets. You couldn't believe the things that were going on Saturday. Yeah, Amy and Brooke, and I, I always say on the stage, it's I don't like to name them because we inevitably forget people, but uh, Art Lyons showing up with the greatest collection of Disney oh, ephemera yes. in history. And, uh, you know, just Shelby, our friend Shelby, who, who, who rolled out some great stuff, too, for our tables and uh, helped the Lake Buena Vista uh, village section uh, become what is the Orange Bird made it there. Orange Bird made it. The, uh, uh, via, the, the woman that the, the uh, Latter-day Saints woman via, came as via, well. Yeah, via the way of the Mormon tabernacle, but uh, the Orange Bird <laughs> made it. And for, for those listeners not understanding, we had ordered a, a uh, four or five foot orange bird standee 
uh, Brian placed the order and then uh, conveniently a few days of later the package arrived and our recipient for us opened it up only to find a woman holding a copy of the Mormon Bible. The Book of Mormon in yeah. Spanish. In Spanish, that's right. In Spanish. So we were no. a little confused. We got the wrong standee, but uh, she was she attended the event anyway, and she held uh, some of the gifts that we I really, filmed. really want to meet the people who got who, the orange who received this <laughs> orange bird. He's out in they Utah. Were, you know, <laughs> he's making I mean, his he's, rounds he's sitting there with the collection plate now at the, it's, the it's, <laughs> maybe he's part of the tabernacle choir. We'll catch him Could at the, the Christmas. Well, you special know, you know year? what? Didn't the didn't the peanuts? Uh, the peanuts were used to uh, advertise the the, the Latter Day Saints yeah, television yeah. commercials. So we might see Orange Bird now. <laughs> Maybe you know. You, know, you never you know, know. You never know. It's, they might be. It's the next anime. So that was one of the so. many many fun challenges we had in staging yeah. Retro Magic. But the best part was that uh, we and believe me, we had a lot of challenges. <clears throat> um. Uh, for the guests in the audience, I don't think uh, they were aware of any of them, and that's no. the best. And that's the best way to do an event. We started the planning back in uh, March uh, 2021 for this, and it took until the official planning. Right, yes. the official planning. It took until December 21, just a few days before Christmas, to actually sign a contract and and get things moving where we knew what we were paying. Uh, and then had a very very large bill to pay within within a week, uh, which was which was fun, <laughs> to say the least. Yes. And Brian, it just snowballed from there. As I said, there were very very few things that were oh we're just we're going to do this, and it just happened. Uh, it took a lot of work, but you know what? It was uh, priceless. I mean, I really think we all walked out of there that day as exhausted as we were. We just had a tremendous uh, sense of accomplishment and, uh, you know, we just enjoyed being with everybody and celebrating 40 years, 50 years of Walt Disney World, 40 years of Epcot, uh, you know, the, the, the legends, every, you know, everything was just great. And, and a great sense of camaraderie amongst the, the 400 plus folks who attended uh, that was something that was commented on how, you know, most of these folks who had seen each other over the years at D23 events or at our events, a lot of them had not been out to something like this in over three yeah. years because of the pandemic. And uh, so, uh, you know, it wasn't just about seeing us as much uh, for some of them as being with each other and being able to share that time with each other. And it, and it was really uh, it was wonderful. It was. Um, it was. I had a lot of fun walking through the crowd during our, our planned breaks, and there was a number of people that would just flag you down and talk to you, or you know, mm -hmm. I'd be talking to somebody, and somebody say, "I thought I recognized your voice," and I, you know, just a complete stranger. <laughs> Everybody's very nice. It was yeah. a fun. There was a lot of good times in there just to just to chat, and you know, yep, just, I like that. I think we made a lot of changes this time too that that really helped the flow. We got a lot of nice comments on the flow of the day, and you know, we're certainly learning from it. We'll make the next one better, as Brian always says. Um, we, we learned from everything, but my, you know, we do these surveys. My particular favorite critique was that we stuck to our countdown clock this time <laughs> too right. much. Last time we had these guys ramble on for an hour plus and we were like, the timeline totally got messed up. We yeah. ran like 45 minutes over and, 
Uh, this time, you know, we had a countdown clock. We made sure our sessions stayed almost entirely on schedule. Sometimes a couple were even ahead of schedule. And at the end of the day, there were a couple of complaints. That everything went too fast. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, the we, people that, yeah, you didn't see, if you're up on stage, I mean, obviously it's very bright. You can't really see the people. And right. then down below, like if you saw us glancing down to the right, there was a, a mirror image of the screen that was behind us so we didn't have to look, and then there was a, a big red timer counting down. So, you know, I'm talking to Bob Gurr, you want to look Bob Gurr in the eye like anybody would, but then you're also out of your right eye kind of looking at the corner of the time going down. So it was a countdown timer that was i thought it was super helpful i love yeah, that it was, thing. The be- it was the best 80 dollars we spent i mean it, exactly. it, it made being a <laughs> presenter you guys did a lot more than me up there but it was very much like this is amazing it, i know it, where i can keep going or it, not right. go it, it was also a help to the guests on stage so you know you have a lot of older folks and we'd be up there before and you could sometimes sense that they were looking at you like how, how much longer are we going to go yeah and it was never a question for the folks up on stage. I mean, JT's right with the lights on us and everything. It is very hard to see the audience once the once the house lights are down. Uh, but you could see that clock, like you know. And that was funny when I originally had talked to Todd about getting it. I was just talking about like a dark room timer or something. And it's like, no, 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 this thing's like it, it's big, and you'll be able to see it. And I'm like, oh, we won't have any problems. And I was so glad he didn't talk me down from the more expensive <laughs> option he wanted because it was perfect. perfect. It, was perfect. Having, it was all remote work. control and everything. Like, yeah, YouTube Gary was Wi-Fi. off the side. He had it hooked up to his phone and remote, and it was it was great. Somebody um, was going long. I think it was How with Norm, yes. which that's the person you want to go long with. And we're like, can you send him a message on the countdown timer? <laughs> like, like spell, wrap spell it up. Like it didn't scroll like an old dot matrix. Uh, Gary or something. said all he could sell, uh, all he could spell was ho- was hello or boobies. That's all he could do with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> we could flash words on there like exactly. an old calculator. Hell, hell you could do hell. Too. Yeah, yeah. Leave the O off. See now, I thought I kept me right on time. Was, yeah, was, yeah, it was well. fine. Yeah. It was I mean, fine. I did the same thing with the chefs. We ran down to zero, and then I spent a couple minutes wrapping up. But right. like I said, we had we had a few that ran ahead. So yeah. um, I hope. The other, oh yeah, go ahead. No, go I was going to say one of, one of the other uh, pieces of feedback that we got from people even on the day was like, "Oh, can we make this two days?" Um, it's. <laughs> It sounds it's a exhausting. Lot. Well, well, I think the first answer is we'd love to. We'd love to. Right. Yeah. We would love to. But there's also the other half of it people have to understand is that uh, when you when you have an event at any of these facilities, if you have a full event on a day, uh, a second day or a prior day, it becomes the need to fulfill their catering minimums. So what happens is that you know you're doubling or moving your price up 30 to 40 percent um you know the room is essentially for all intents and purposes is is there's no charge um on a room you're basically paying for the av and you're paying for and, all the food and, and everything's and, bundled and in the it. end what disney does when they do d23 uh i mean we got the lunch if you remember at epcot 40 but at the other events there's no food right so what right. they essentially do is they because d23 pays the same rates that everybody else yeah. does what they do is they just take that money and it's probably spent backstage feeding the vips and doing some small events that but they just basically give you the room and that's right. it you, you come and you sit in your seat and and they have to pay that minimum and they just don't order any any food for the public it's 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 all spent backstage right 
Um, we're feeding you with the yeah. dollars we need. Well, to spend. right, right. I mean, I'm <laughs> so. you know we we try to make it a value proposition. Right. Uh, you know, and 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 you know maybe in the future that's not where all our money should go. But we figure since we have to spend the money anyway, uh, that you should right. get get a nice meal. Yep. Out of it. And we got a lot of compliments on the meal this time. We did. We did. It was really, I, I think it was efficient. It moved and I, I, that staff was, was, was fantastic with it. Um, some interesting things too. We, we did talk to a lot of people and um, uh, it sounds like Saturday and Sunday was when people want to have future events, which we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah. I, um, I, I also want to mention the, the reason we do Sundays. I mentioned this a bit online uh, as we engage with people is we do have a, a, about a third of our attendees are from Florida. But they're not necessarily Central Floridians. Like they don't live in the you know within a half an hour, forty minutes of Disney. Right. They're 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 coming from Jacksonville and they're coming from Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And uh, for those folks, if you were doing a Saturday event, you know that either means driving through Friday night traffic uh, in Florida, or it means getting up at five o'clock in the morning to drive and make it to our nine a.m. event. Uh, so we we do the events on Sundays. Uh, because it is, and the same thing's true with people who fly down from work, uh, you know, from other parts of the country, it gives them a little flexibility to get into town. And if there's flight delays or anything else and get them there by Friday night or sometime Saturday so that they can situate themselves and be prepared to be there for, for Sunday. That's, that's why it's on a Sunday. Exactly. So, um, so going over a couple of the other things, Brian and, and the crew, I mean, um, the swan boat was was a really neat addition, right? People yeah, were just so, dumbfounded that a swan was there. Not the bison yeah. boat, but it was the so, swan. So uh, let, let's talk a bit about that. Yeah. Uh, about a month before the event, I don't remember, is it Imagineering Disney or Imagineering? One of them had a tweet stream pointing back to their tweet stream from like 2017 about the swan boat. And the last surviving swan boat and how they had tracked down the So, you know, I, I, I sent it over to Todd and I said, you know, it's always been in the back of my mind. We should contact the guy who owns this and see if he wants to bring the boat up to our event. And uh, within 24 hours, we had tracked him down and had him on the phone. Yep. And uh, he said, yeah, I would be willing to do that. And so there was some chatter back and forth. And for a, a brief period of time, we thought we were bringing the the, the whole boat. Uh, and then he came to his senses and says, well, how about if I just bring the swan? And boy, did that turn out to be a popular photo op. And what a neat, neat thing for something that you know was in the parks for 10 years, 1973 to 1983. And those swans had not been like none of them had been on site. Uh, since 1983 yeah, yeah. Uh, so to to bring one back and give i mean i would say of the folks there 80 or 90 percent of them had never seen one of the swans before and such an impressive piece of artwork it, it was really neat and you know somebody pointed out which i never noticed and how you're the artist of the group somebody said i never noticed how the swans had a very cartoon character face on it Oh yeah, they're very, very cute, cute very and healing. not realistic. Yeah. And um, the only change that Jeffrey Snyder made to this one is he painted the eyes a very deep blue, which really brought out the feeling of that face, which I thought was really neat. But yeah, it, it felt like a three-dimensional so, character. So we had the experience on Saturday 
of rolling up a giant door backstage at uh, at the contemporary. We got video. It's uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, of rolling up the back door and then figuring out that this thing had to come out the side of the van, not the back of it, in order to get it out. And, uh, and so we there were like five of us drafted to come out there and lift and direct this thing into the room. Uh, but we were cautioned ahead of time, you know, wherever you hold it, you can't touch the gold leaf. And there's gold leaf throughout all of the, the what I'll call the veins, the the, t- the tips of all of this. So the tips of the wings and through parts of the a, embellishing yeah. the crown on the top and then a, a, along the, the, the belly of it. And so you're gripping this priceless artifact and at the same time trying to make sure that your hands and your fingers don't touch any of the gold leaf uh so in addition to not trying to drop it uh you then you know we got it into the room and then we just set it on the floor until we figured out where to put it and uh, jeffrey had decided how he wanted to display it and then we had the jt and i had the very interesting experience of while our last panel was going on with Jerry Rees up on stage. Uh, Jeff Snyder, at that point, it was after 5 o'clock. He and his wife wanted to load the swan into their van and and and, and make their way out of there uh, before we wrapped up. And uh, so we drafted a couple of folks and started handing out assignments. You hold the door. You do this. You do that. And we did some <laughs> Dukes of Hazard stuff, pulling the van right up to the uh, side door of the Contemporary. <laughs> where you're definitely not supposed to drive a vehicle or park. And uh, I think we got it out of there with a minimum of... Uh, there is a picture of JT loading it into the van. With, yeah, there mm-hmm. is. Uh, Amy went uh, out there, the, took some photos, and we it, sent it, it off. It flew back to the West Palm Beach area, somewhere somewhere in Palm Beach. Yeah, uh, Unloading that thing, I had this, this oh. moment of, of being in high school, and I just started laughing so hard because I'm looking at Brian, and we're holding this thing, and I'm like... It's head heavy, so it starts tipping back. And, like, I start, like, look at Brian. I start laughing because I'm like, this would be the most horribly bad comedic thing it's, ever if it's they like just, Ke- just it's went. It's like the episode of The Office where Kevin's walking in with his <laughs> yes. thing of chili. Yeah, you just know right. this is. I'm about to spill chili all over the floor. And, and, I mean, it's just like tip, and I'm like, you know, my thoughts are like, do not drop this, dear God. This guy's just like, you know, he's got foam and he's got padding and moving blankets, and we got it in, and it was fine. But like, you're just like, nobody's ever done this before, and we would be even worse if nobody, anybody's ever dropped this thing before. Yes. Like, it was just this overall <laughs> moment of like, don't screw this That's up. That's right. That's right. So I, I that that was a really really special uh, addition. Uh, that we were able to make to the event. And, and I, I don't I, think I, it's going to be back on Disney property ever no, again. No. Don't no. think it'll be back. No. Um, all right, guys. So I, I think we also have to talk about, uh, I should say that differently because that sounds stupid. We also have to talk about, <laughs> I guess. We, no, that's not right. All right, gentlemen. Um, we also had Ted Linhart. Uh, he was nice enough to fly down and uh, join us. And uh, he bought a, suitcase full of documents he and i sat down and he, he's the the owner of disneydocs.net and he and i sat down and went through a lot of his collection and decided on what he could bring down to show everybody we purposely put him first so that 
people would have time to go over to the uh, the village, the Lake Buena Vista Village area of the of the event, and sit down with Ted and stand there and go through different documents. Um, my personal favorite, I mean, there are so many to choose from. Um, the the Polynesian Hotel overview for cast members. Uh, everybody commented on the cover on that one, but absolute my personal favorite, and I went over and spent some time with Ted on this one. Uh, was the 1976 to 1986. It was Harper Goff's personal album with uh, concept art for World Showcase, the opening days of Epcot Center. It was it was really, really, really cool. Um, oh, I've seen scans of that. But I didn't realize he had that in, there in person. I would have I would have made sure I went over and looked at it. <laughs> got to send you over there, Hal. Well, uh, Ted, if you're listening, you got to come back. That's that's what it is. We got to bring this back. That was the one that too. He said to me, he's like. I don't know. I this is it's so heavy, it's so big. Um, you know, if you guys remember the the the, the old uh, scrapbooks, you would you know peel that plastic back and stick those photos in and put the plastic back over. It's one of those, but it wasn't the standard ten by ten. This was like one of the I don't know fifteen sixteen by ten, so it was extra long and extra thick. And I don't think there's any ever way to get those photos good out of there, you know, well without ripping them. They're going to have to be taken out. Um, how you did see, because I know a lot of people responded to this one, the reference photos for the Carousel Progress was, was a big hit. Oh, the, um, you mean the, the Polaroids. Uh, meet the World. Meet the World, right? No, no, no. It was the Carousel Progress, the all the animatronic designs with the Polaroids. Oh, and the... oh, he had that too? Yes, yes. Oh, I feel like I missed out on everything now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think it was Brian who said, at some point he says, if, if I wasn't up there presenting, I pretty much missed it. So we're going to have to go back and do the, do, do the videos. Um, but how you did mention to me, there was one that you did, uh, what was it? One of the Gurr things that he had? There, he had two things that he had Bob Gurr sign, uh, while he was there that were studying. One was a, uh, it was a book that Bob wrote, I think right out of, uh, right when he was out of art school, that was about car styling. Mm. And it, and I think JT mentioned that he talked to him. And Bob said uh, it was rare not to find one that had a bunch of drawings in it and also (laughs) like pencil impressions all over the cover because kids would get it and then they would like put a piece of paper on top of it and trace on top of it. So (laughs) uh, yeah, so a lot of them are damaged from that. Uh, And then the other thing, uh, of course, I love the story, which I think we heard a couple people talk about uh, during the presentation. Uh, I think it was one of the maybe it was one of the, I think it was the one with uh, with all the early guys about how the parking lot trams the first ones that they designed uh, that were not Bob Gurr's design uh, they would go underneath that um, water bridge between the contemporary and the ticket and transportation center uh, right, because right. at first uh, the trams were the viable third option when you went to the transportation and ticket center you had the option of taking the monorail the uh one of the osceola class side wheelers or a tram (laughs) and the tram turnaround is still there uh at the ticket and transportation center it's i don't think it's used for anything anymore but if you look over to the right hand side as you're walking up to the monorail station it's it's still there that's where the trams would come in and turn around they go past some topiaries and wind their way out onto world drive go underneath the water bridge well they they talked about how the I don't remember what the story was of why they ended up with them. I, th- I think someone from the company assured them that uh, those ones would work and they loaded them up with people and they would take them under and it would get stuck. And then they would take off one, <laughs> one cart of people 
and reduce it by whatever 24 people or whatever it is and run it in again and then it would get stuck and they would pull another one off and eventually the whole thing it was a huge debacle or debacle debacle it was a huge debacle we have photos of the old ones in our archives yeah there was um th those are the really old ones that were like almost like airline tugs if you right. will yeah they looked flat and i think that's what they were i think they were from like uh pulling luggage and things yeah. around um but they didn't have the the pulling capacity <laughs> that they really needed for that so um so bob ended up redesigning them uh i don't know if he started from scratch uh or if he actually got to use i think he just started from scratch um he he built something from the parts that were available at the time that uh had power and they were also um natural they ran off a of compressed natural gas instead of um instead of gasoline because that was a big thing at the park at the time trying to be environmentally conscious um like the jungle cruise boats also, also ran off a of compressed natural gas right so there was a a lot of stuff but he has this I don't know, 500 page manual <laughs> of how you fix that thing. Uh, and just fascinating. Of course, that's the one where I think Bob said he couldn't figure out any way to get people in on the sides. So he just made the door open up from the front of the, <laughs> the tram. And you would, you would literally see them when they would get in and get out, they would open up the, basically the front windshield was a whole, you know, five foot six foot tall piece yeah big piece of plexiglass it would, it, would it would open up like a screen door and you'd step out in front of the tram to like get down and then it would hang at this odd angle so when you got back up again you probably had to reach way out in order to like grab the handle and pull it back in again but you know what it worked it, it worked great and we for just years and years we just got a new uh scan of one of the uh trams too that that pink one that uh, we got oh, we've, okay. been, we've been looking at that so we'll have to check that out so yeah but so that's uh, good yeah so i hope a lot of people spent time over with ted it was it was great for him to bring those things down the poor guy's gonna bring them all back uh tuck them back into their into the safe or whatever gun safe i don't know what ted's got he's got something yeah. locked in his place so i know people really did enjoy it because i there were many times when i was shuffling around back and forth between my presentations when i would look over and there was somebody uh going through stuff he was nice enough to take things out of the case and yeah. let people examine stuff close up and then if if he happened to not be there on a potty break or something it's like <laughs> there someone was always like staring into the into the glass uh cabinets exactly that the books were in it's so cool to see that stuff it's so rare he's and he's got just so much neat stuff exactly um you know i always say um ted is like one of the keystones i think to us understanding many things about walt disney world and, and even disneyland um that we didn't because of his patronage of, of buying these books mm -hmm. uh from auctions and and scanning them and making them available for everyone to see he is his own mini archives uh you know i know disney i always we always say disney has an archives you and i will never step foot in them <laughs> so <laughs> For him to take all of this information and put it up on the internet for free for people to go through and make the connections between things. And, and, you know, when you see one document, 
you're like, okay, I kind of think I know what's going on. When you get into his collection and you see three or four things and then you start to piece the connections between them and to really understand what was going on, it's like that's such a big service that he does for the the historian community and just the, the fans that are that are interested in looking at stuff. So oh, yeah. I, I have to give him so much credit for doing that. It's uh it's a really big deal. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming down, Ted. It was a great thing and I know a lot of people enjoyed it. So one of the uh, how I'd like you to talk a little bit about Norm Inouye's uh, presentation because Norm I, I I put Norm into the classification. I think every time we have this too, I'm going to classify somebody like this. Jim Sarno was the first one that we had in our uh, ret- the first Retro Magic where we kind of put him on the map. Right? He didn't. Nobody really knew who he was. And turns out, it's Smart One. It's the Fountain, and, and we bought him back for Harriet Burns. And I feel like Norm is this Jim Sarno of this. Of, of this one that nobody knew who norm was you found him so tell our listeners a little we learned so much it was fantastic we did we did i mean i think there was a little bit about well there when about they him. did the after our last i guess maybe it was 2019 uh but no it was epcot 35 and i remember when we did that up at the up at the living seas tom nabby was telling us hey next month there's a big Imagineering thing out in California. It's, it's like the last big reunion of everyone who worked on Epcot that they, they were kind of trying right. to do it before people started to die off. And unfortunately, within a few years, you lost Marty Sklar and Charlie Ridgway and all these folks that, that, had, that had been there. So Tom Nabby had kind of told us, hey, we're having this big reunion in California. We're all being flown out for it and this and that. And Tom Morris, uh, Imagineer Tom Morris, who was our guest at Retromag 2019, really deserves the credit because he tweeted a picture that night of Norman Nouye and said, hey, everybody, this is Norman Nouye. He did all those logos at Epcot that were all over the place. And that's kind of when he came on the radar screen for us to say, hey, we should try to get that guy to come out here. I think my thing was like, oh, my God, he's alive. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, how I remember from the from the moment we met him i bumped we bumped into him at port orleans getting we were getting some beignets and he had just flown in and he was so gracious and so flabbergasted at why he would even be here and he was just he was definitely tired at the end of the day he couldn't believe how many people wanted his autograph and wanted to meet him and shake his hand and he was i have to give all of our vips so much credit for meeting with everybody um but i think normally he was just taking some by surprise. And we should mention that he we scheduled him. He was on at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So, I mean, he was there early. And then normally what happens is those folks, the, the early crowd, sometime after lunch they start to peel off. A lot of our early guests, you know, stay for lunch, meet, meet and greet the fans, and then early in the afternoon go to leave, which at certain points Norm indicated that was his intent. Yeah. Uh, but I think how every time you asked him, was like, no, I'm really enjoying this. I want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> he, he really did. And uh, in our survey, he was the number one ranked uh, panel. Believe it oh, or not. well, yeah. there we go. So. But I, we tried, we really tried to prepare him the, the evening before at dinner saying like, okay, I know you're, you know, you're not prepared for this, but there's going to be a lot of people who are really into yeah. what you did. And you've been isolated from, you know, the, the East coast of Florida for 40 years. It's like, but these logos that you did have had a tremendous impact on people's lives. They're like, I just want to warn you once, <laughs> once we do this, like there are going to be people that are, that are going to surprise I, you. And I knew, I knew that some folks had had tattoos done, 
but I did not tell him because I knew that would blow right. his mind once I brought up pictures of t- uh, people with his logo. I don't know if you him. caught it, but uh, Erica Rose uh, from Twitter, she just this week went out and finally got her Epcot logo tattoo and then tweeted it with pictures of <laughs> of her telling Norm, I'm going to get this tattoo. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So yeah, he was he was a great guest. Um, so for those of you that did attend, you know Norm, he got started at GM, and he uh, he did the first redraw of the uh, the screaming chicken, the redraw of the Firebird logo um, that happened in 1970, uh, which eventually after he left, it was reworked into the version that you saw on the hood of the Trans Am in the Smokey and the Bandit movie. So. Um, he was the one that that led the redesign of that, and then he went off and and worked for some agencies for a few years, and then uh, he had he told us a story that he knew someone who was related to Disney, and that person said like, oh, they're doing a Tokyo Disneyland, and because he's of Japanese descent, he thought, oh, maybe this would be a chance for me to to go to Japan because I've never been there. It'd be really cool to do that. So he went and interviewed with them, and they were like, oh yeah, you can work on the Japan stuff, but we have this other project that we'd like you to do first. It's called Epcot. And so uh, Norm's first job was to start designing the pavilion logos. So Imagination and Spaceship Earth and all those those logos that you saw, he did all of those. And then when he was done with that, he did the main Epcot logo, not the typography part of it, but the interlocking rings, the five rings with the star in the middle. And he kind of explained what his process was of, of how he reasoned out that. Um, and then the big surprise for all of us, is that he actually designed the fountain that is in the front of Epcot Yeah, Center. that John Hench got credit for for 40 years. And <laughs> yeah. thought it was Norm's work. And so uh, he, he briefly told the story about how he was in John Hench's office uh, working on something else, and John just kind of made this off-the-cuff remark uh, that uh, Spaceship Earth could use something in front of it that was more of a human scale because it, you'd walk up to the front of it and it's just this monumental building. And we found uh, renderings uh, from that time period where there was no fountain there. It was, you know, there was a big flower bed, colorful thing kind of leading up to it, but there was nothing there. And so Norm thought, well, okay, let me start thinking about something. And he started with some signs and then eventually threw out the sign idea and, and started thinking about the fountains and Originally, it was going to have nine glass prisms uh, for each one of the logos of the pavilions and then the main Epcot logo in the center. And then they figured out that was going to cost too much. And so they went with acrylic and they pared it down to three and just put the Epcot logos on it. And it just turned out beautiful. And uh, he said it was one of the someone told him that it was the most photographed uh, place in Epcot Center. And I believe that is to be true. Uh, and he also told us that there was a joke internally that since Spaceship Earth was the golf ball, that the fountain was the tee. Yeah, which was great. I had never heard that before. And <laughs> never heard that one but before But it makes either. total so, sense. Um, it does. It fell yeah. off. So yeah. he was just such a wonderful guest. We showed some other work that he did, uh, posters and such for Epcot and uh, Magic Journeys and Tokyo Disneyland and some other things. But he was... Just uh, gracious and kind and uh, sharp as a tack for 82 years old. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And his, his wife was absolutely flabbergasted that her husband meant anything to anybody other than her. <laughs> uh, she couldn't believe that, you know, he was he was famous. So um, he said, this must be my 15 minutes of fame. And I'm like, 
you know what, Norm, this could be just the beginning That's of right. your 15 minutes of fame. But, but yeah. And, and, and we know that he, he got to take his, uh, his son and his, and his grandkids to Epcot for the first time. Yeah. Uh, later that week, they stayed for the week. And uh, the first time that they got to see the fountain, because when he had had his family there in the past, the fountain was gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they, they, you know, now that his fountain is back and the logos are up everywhere, I, 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 uh, I hope that that it was a, a meaningful experience for him and the whole family. Yeah, I would have wanted to go on that and watch him point everything out. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that's going to be our thousand dollar ticket event next year. Is you just just spend the day walking around Epcot with Norm. That's right. We're gonna... JT, so you you had the 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 we gave you the task of uh, you know taming Bob Gurr in thirty yeah. minutes or less, and you did a fantastic job uh, wrangling you. questions, and uh, it was quick fire, and I love how you just told them, look, we got to move here, and you got. All sorts of great stuff, and and everybody echoed the loved the story of him, the, the fastest the monorail buzzing through the contemporary at forty three miles an hour. Yeah, yeah Bob, Bob is cool. He's like, uh, you know, you ask him something and you expect. How old is he? 90? 91? 91. 91 yeah. You don't expect what you get from Bob. So you know, you're like, you're gonna be. I mean, everybody knows who Bob is for the most part. Probably listens to the show, but you expect, uh, you know, a ninety one year old guy conversation. I mean, I've had conversations with guys in their seventies, and it it wasn't like that, and. And, and Bob just goes, and so we got all those questions in, lots of good ones, and lots of repeat ones too. So we, I tried to condense, and then I had my my list, and we just went. I, I wanted to also throw in like stuff to keep him interested, because you know that the kind of guy like Bob is like, if you interview LeBron James, you're getting the same question all the time. What was it like to do this? How was what? You know, that sort of stuff. So you want to throw those in there. But I wanted some new stuff, too, that, like, maybe he never answered before or maybe just kind of, like, sparked his brain into some other tangent he could go with. So that's what I was kind of going with with that stuff. Yeah. But the, uh, I, I could do a, a car talk for an hour and a half with Bob, I think, just <laughs> talking cars and stuff. And I love the monorail stuff. I would like to do just a, a, a monorail segment with Bob alone, just digging into it oh, and just yeah. asking questions because... That's that's very interesting to me that how that yep. that all shook down and I you know he he's when you dig into Bob like which I did before he's he's very Disneyland centric like all this the majority of his work is but the Disney World stuff is just I feel like it's almost like not as popular or something it seems like and and beyond Disney World too I mean you could you yeah. could, even even if you were there as a Disney fan celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of Disney World. To listen to everything he did after he left Imagineering for good in 1980 or 81, uh, you know, between the work for Steve Wynn in Las Vegas and 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 the the work he was doing all over the world, yeah, uh, it's just fascinating, fascinating stuff. So uh, we've told Bob as long as we do these events and he's able, he has a standing invite. So when That's we right. do another event, Bob will be there. Yep. Uh, whether he's germane to the topic or not, Bob Bob Gurr's always going to have our invitation, right. as long as we've got Bob Gurr with us, and and because uh, he's just terrific. I'm telling you, the the I was the, just the Facebook algorithm. Uh, it it knew I was looking up Bob Gurr or something because literally a road and track or motor trend story came up on my feed, and it was like, man drives Autopia car to work every day oh, yeah. is his daily. <laughs> 
And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. And then, sure as anything, there Bob Gurr assisted with this build and was, you know, going back to, you know, the old archives that he could and stuff. And it was a story about Bob in, like, current day. It's just he never seems to disappear when it connects to Disney in some way. Yeah. I was just blown away when he went through the entire supply chain on, like, the parts that were used it's like, oh, I took a, this thing from Force Six Packard and attached it to this thing. And, like, he had the years and the model numbers of, like, all the different truck pieces he had used in order to, like, I think it was make the Omnibus. And it was just mind-boggling that, you know, he had done that in 1957, maybe. And he still remembered everything. Do you guys know that he is still proficient in utilizing CAD and 3D design? He's been working on a project. I, I just oh, found really? it fast. Yeah, I saw I saw the drawings and stuff, and and, and uh, spoke to Shelby about it, and I was dumbfounded. The guy sitting I, there designing everything from the wires to the parts to the way this this, this thing is going to operate. Well, and occasionally I will watch other interviews with him, appearances he's done at non Disney things. There's one on online where he was at Google, I think, and and did a lunchtime session with Google employees and. You know, he does a lot of other speaking engagements that are not at, you know, Disney fan things. There's a, the broader interests. In fact, he was just what? The Grand Marshal of some parade. One of the Rose. Uh, uh, not Rose. What is it? It wasn't the Rose Parade, but it was no. a California parade uh, this past weekend. <clears throat> um, but he he's, he, you know, he, he, he was obviously in his 80s at that point. But uh, somebody asked him about his philosophy and an aging, and he says, "You know, my answer is while you're alive, live." Yep. And uh, and he does. Uh, yeah. He's just you know I get tired watching everything he does. No, he. I, I mean, it's everything from I, I almost bought red shoes to wear on the interview to I mean, you're almost trying to keep up with Bob, and I'm you know 39 years old, thinking God, yes. I got to keep up with this guy. It's just. It's something else. You, he's somebody you look up to, and you're like, uh, I, I hope I'm I'm running that strong at that age. You know, sixty years from now, and right. that's right. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're here at that age, that's the kind of ninety year old you want to be. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't quit, and he he's he was signing on. I mean, I I loved it before we started the the doors opened. I took something for him to sign, and then uh, uh, Ted Linhart walks up with uh, a legit book Bob wrote. I mean, which, you know, that in itself, you're like, that's awesome. And, you know, you see Bob holding the book he wrote. And Bob literally looks at the book. It was How to Draw Cars. And he's like, you know, this one's in pretty good shape, Ted. You know, kids, what they used to do is they used to take their paper and put it on the front of the cover. And they draw and the cover would disappear. And where, I mean, he's just, and this book's from like the 50s. You know, he's going through this whole thing. And you're like, this is insane. Like, you're just listening to this guy. You're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You shouldn't remember this, but you do. And he signed Ted's book, and I was like, that's awesome. He just signed something. I mean, it's just like this whole thing. It's one of those moments that I, I'll, I'll never forget, just seeing Bob do this stuff. It's you, awesome. You could have the Bob Girl weekend. You really could. Yeah. yeah. so many stories. I don't think I have the stamina. He does, <laughs> but we don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brian, you know, I, I want to also tell you, you did the Chef's Reunion uh, and, and with a surprise presentation of t- current Tonga Toast. So maybe just let the listeners how that how that went, and I'm going to finish up a little bit about Sarno. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I want to touch on uh, all of the panels that I had a hand yeah, in. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, because part of it was to try to bring people uh, who had not uh, done a lot of events or ever done events uh, like this before. So I started off the morning with Dave Vermeulen, 
who came onto our radar screen via Peggy Ferris, who was originally scheduled to appear and couldn't. Um, and Dave ended up, you know, with a 48 year Disney career that started uh, growing up in the shadows of the orange grove that became Disneyland and working there uh, in, in Disneyland in the sixties and eventually having a 48 year career with the Disney organization, holding executive positions in the parks in the resorts, and then spending most of the last 15 years of his career at, uh, at the Asian parks uh, in various capacities in Japan and, and, and uh, Hong Kong and, um, a little bit of period of time in Shanghai before it was open. Uh, but just a fascinating guy with the different roles that he, that he, that he fulfilled. Uh, one of my, well, a couple favorite stories because he headed up the, uh, the Mediterranean and, um, Asian resort project in the 19, in 1981, 82, uh, for the Ron Miller led Disney organization. And he told us that great story on stage of, you know, working for a year on the project with everybody. And then they went in and made their presentation to Ron Miller, who looked at the Venetian resort and said, it looks like a Southern California apartment complex. And I don't want to build an apartment complex. <laughs> and that story to our knowledge had never been told before. So that's great that that little piece of the puzzle is out there as to why that project near the ticket and transportation center never happened. Uh, and then I did get up with uh, the Disney legends, which were supposed to be five folks. And we lost uh, Bill Sully Sullivan, who had been former vice president in a, of, of the resort, and uh, and Steve Baker, who was the opening day uh, parking lot uh, tram guy, but also spent 10 years in the Epcot Development Corporation recruiting the sponsors, getting the international program up and running, and really opening and helping pull Epcot together. Uh, and they would have been great additions to our Legends panel. Uh, but I get the sense when we spent some time up there with Debbie Dane Brown, who was the first ambassador, our old friend Tom Nabby, a Disney legend, who's had a bajillion roles uh, at the parks in both Disneyland and World, and Billy Holsher, who, in addition to his time in Disneyland, was the preview center um, uh, manager originally and then worked in a variety of capacities within the parks uh, until he left the company in the late 80s. Uh, I don't know that Sully and Steve Baker would have gotten a word in edgewise between between Tom and, and Debbie and, and uh, Billy as they were great talkers. Uh, so we, we got some great stories out of them. And then, yeah, we got to the chefs. Uh, you know, this, as you know, was a dream panel of mine was uh, to bring back uh, some of the men and women who played a role in uh, creating the res the food in the parks and the resorts in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And uh, boy, we hit the jackpot. Three exceptionally interesting guys, uh, Johnny Rivers and uh, Keith Keough and, and Chef Raymond Pitts, uh, all with varied backgrounds, uh, uh, all had worked in both resorts and parks. And we learned that there was a friendly uh, competition of sorts and sometimes not so friendly competition between the culinary teams in the parks and the culinary teams in the resorts. Uh, the hook there was that they were part of this culinary Olympics in 1988. Uh, the Disney sent a team to that they were all part of and Keith led. Uh, that had a record-setting amount of medals that's never been equaled over a three-year period. They uh, Disney racked up perfect scores and and uh, for, I think it was fourteen medals and uh, 
uh, silvers and golds and all this. And, and, and it's a performance that will never, ever be, be equaled. Uh, it was, it was amazing to hear those stories and hear about the early development of the culinary programs at the resorts. And it ended with chef Pitts posing a really strong question to us, which is, you know, with all of these accomplishments, why is there no window on main street, uh, dedicated to these folks? And, uh, I think that's a project, uh, once we get the videos out there from the event and, and, and more fully pull this together, uh, that, that we might have to take up as a cause, uh, because they deserve one. Uh. Absolutely. His intro to that was hilarious. Cause I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying this or whatever, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway, you know, and he, he was all for it. And, um, so he, uh, he, if you're in the Orlando area or if you're visiting uh, his restaurant, he's the only one of the three that has an operating restaurant. The others are semi-retired and, into and, businesses that you can't patronize, but, uh, chef Pitts owns Le Coca van, which is a French restaurant, uh, off of orange blossom trail in Orlando. Uh, I had dinner there last year and it's absolutely worth, uh, planning your time around. And if you do go, I suggest that you uh, either call ahead or email ahead. Let them know that you're coming because of his uh, connection to Disney and that you'd love to meet him. Uh, and they might be able to tell you what nights he's in the restaurant. And if you're really lucky, he'll stop by your table. Uh, I think one thing we all learned is he's a master storyteller. And I'm just looking at the menu right now. Oh, man. <laughs> Sea scallops, beige shrimp, mushrooms, and a light cream sauce with a cheese and garlic parsley crust. Oh, well, Todd, we're going there next time we're both uh, absolutely. in Florida. So, we're, I mean, we're there. We're there. you know, but but for sure. But I'm just putting it out there for the general populace. It's uh, it's an Orlando legend that he's owned for about 20 years now. So it's uh, it's certainly worth your worth your time and effort to get out there, and uh, you can still eat. He's the and he was the chef that opened uh, Disney MGM Studios. Every stitch yep. of food in there. Uh, when the park opened was uh, was by his hand and, and by his plan. And, and we, uh, he we, told us some great stories from that. Other than JT, we all sat down. There were, what, eight of us that night. And we all, other than the kids, everybody had Cobb salad. Yeah. So. we uh, There were there were eight or nine of us there for yeah. dinner. And uh, at the Brown Derby at the end of our one day in the park, JT had to leave to make the airport for his, for his late night flight home. Uh, or else he might have gotten a Cobb salad, too. That's right. I Did probably would have. I, I don't think I've ever had one. So oh, I would have. So good. So good. I'm sure if you got one on the plane, it would have been just as good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Spirit Airlines makes I, a I, mean cob salad. That's right. <laughs> I was not prepared for how good that was. It's be. worth it, isn't it? I was just like, eh, cobs. I probably had one somewhere in my time. I was like, yeah, whatever. Well, most but, places yeah. that you go, the difference between a cob and a chef salad is there is no difference. They basically cut up some ham and cheese and bacon or whatever and throw it out there and or, or or just substitute instead of ham and cheese, just throw turkey and bacon out there and call it a Cobb salad. And a Cobb salad is very specific. Raymond went through the whole process with us of not only the history of it, but his preparation and learning about the preparation from the the, the, the keeper of the flame that owned the, the Brown Derby name from Hollywood who came in and spent time as he developed the menus. I mean, we learned that night he's, he's explaining to us about, you know, the grapefruit cake and how every grapefruit slice has to be at exactly seven o'clock, which I, I never knew, you know, in terms of its positioning on the cake and, and just fascinating stuff. We got a lot of great feedback about that panel. Like 
people were like, more chefs. We want to hear more from the chefs. We'll be talking food. So one of our other guests, I mentioned earlier, was Jim Sarno. We brought him back to talk specifically about Harriet Burns. And I have to admit, he and I kind of went over stuff ahead of time. And I kind of left it to be a surprise for myself so that I, I didn't know what he was bringing. I didn't ask him to bring anything. He told me that he was bringing the cutout of Harriet and stuff. Um, and he told some great stories. Uh, there was actually another story that we he could not tell on stage, but it, uh, all <laughs> I can say is that if anybody you out there, if anybody out there has heard about the eyeball story, it is absolutely true. So that's we'll leave it at that. Um, well, this is a kids show, and we, we won't, you know, we have kid listers. We won't repeat that story on here. Correct. Um, also, too, I mean, he he bought some amazing things from Harriet's collection that he really was very close with her and her. her her family was very gracious in uh, giving him a number of different artifacts from her collection, um, pieces of art, things from Walt Disney's Paris trip, um, little things that she made for Disneyland. Um, and it was it was really neat because Harriet sat next to him uh, when he was in charge of sculpting the fountain, and she was the one that kind of kept him going, and that's where they formed that relationship. And He's got handwritten notes and cards and different things uh, to this day. So that was a really... A really neat panel, um, and uh, he gave me a disc at the end, gentlemen, with, with, from her memorial service, and um, asked me to convert it for him. So I've got all the. It's about twenty minutes of her, just her, single camera, just talking and ans- answering questions. So maybe on a future one, we can bring her back and let her tell some of these stories to people as well. So a lot of neat stuff there. Very cool. Uh, and how then you helped put together Mr. Reese as well, Mr. Wow, we. You didn't sit down with him and have beignets as I did, and we got into some. <laughs> Brian eventually got up and left. He's like, "This well, this conversation's deep." Well, our friend Michelle, uh, we, we happened to run into our friends Michelle and Ariel when when we were just getting to to the uh, French Quarter to commandeer several tables for for beignets after dinner, and. You know, I, I you know we we knew to look out for Norm and his wife because we knew they had arrived recently and would probably be in the food court and and we did spot them fairly quickly and invite them over to our table and and that was nice and I texted Jerry and just that's where he was staying and I said hey if you we're down here if you want to come come down and he said I'm just getting settled give me give me give me a little bit I, I think I'll stop down and. So and then when he stopped down, uh, Michelle, I don't remember the specifics, but she some part of her college thesis or master's paperwork was on a, a film or staging related topic, a theming related topic with which she asked Jerry uh, for his input. All I know is that the conversation was still going 45 minutes later, and I suddenly felt like a 100-level kid in a 400-level class. Uh, you know, and it, you know, and Jerry is just Jerry and her going back and forth, and he's yeah. talking to the whole table about, you know, film theory and staging well, we, we, theory. We and, got into artificial intelligence and how you can yeah. create a artificial you or an artificial avatar or buddy to carry around with and and what are the social aspects and dynamics of that how do you also store all that information safely and use it and don't use it against you we got into um how ai can be used my wife is a therapist how it could be used for therapy uh, ai right. in film and and, and, res- and restoration he had mentioned i had asked him what are you like what have you been doing 
Yeah, and I told you you should if he just answered on mow the lawn, it would have been no. It would have been fine. <laughs> have been but he told us like he's not allowed to say specifically, but he did say he had been working for Disney over most of yeah. the pandemic and in the years leading up to it, mm-hmm. uh, won some AI related theme park stuff. You yeah, know, like some of it made it into Galactic Cruiser. It wasn't what he wanted, but um, you know, he explained what 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 was put in there and there's a lot more that he was working on and you know, those are some of the things he talked to us about. But I got to talking to Jerry too um after dinner and we have a common interest in film and video and uh, he told me about a couple of the things that he has and uh, we're going to see if we can get together and and work on some projects uh, in the future, which is fantastic. Um but he was a it was it was a great panel. I mean, he went into Cranium Command and and art of anim- the, the animation stuff with Robin Williams, and forty five minutes didn't give him enough time. We <laughs> he's got to come back. Yeah, I think I, as much as we tried to, he he did a wonderful impromptu session on everything he had done from Star Tours, shooting Billy D. Williams, through I think probably the two thousands, uh, the day before when we were doing our sound check. So that let us kind of narrow it down a little bit to his work in Imagineering in the 1990s, which was the theme of that presentation. But even so, I mean, he's he's such an interesting guy, uh, so smart, so are, uh, able to articulate like the reasoning behind everything, the emotional, and that that was really the the thing that struck me in talking to him. It's you know, uh, for everything you know, it's not just about plot for him. It, it's about the emotion and the why you're doing something that's part of the plot that I think really drives uh, what he does and, and makes it very Disney. So uh, we had him discuss his work with uh, Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite on the uh, the film, uh, well, multiple films done for the, um, the animation tour at Disney MGM. That was his first project uh, kind of with them because he had directed... Brave Little Toaster, and did a, a whole slew of things in animation and direction, uh, which which got him interested in, or actually brought him into Disney. He was he was brought in as a consultant. Someone said, "Hey, look at this. What would you do differently?" Uh, I think uh, that was uh, actually uh, oh goodness, uh, BRC Imagination yeah. Arts. That was their Bob project Rogers, to yeah. work on. Bob Rogers Group was uh, was working on the animation tour, and someone brought him in, a, a friend, and said, "Like, give me some thoughts on this," and he's in a day he basically gave them something better than what they had been working on well, for right. months and then jeffrey katzenberg took a liking to him because you know jerry's expertise is film and 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 directing and jeffrey katzenberg was head of the disney studios at the time but as i'll tell you one of the revelations and i've read disney war and uh, the creative artist agency book and a bunch of other stuff where you kind of get a sense of of the day to day when it was Eisner and Wells and Katzenberg and their and their management team, uh, but Jeffrey Katzenberg had a lot more input into the parks than I think a lot of us realized, and and Jerry kind of peeled the onion back on that a bit as he was telling his different stories of, you know, Jeffrey would come and look at these films and rides and things and say this needs to be changed and that needs to be changed and. Uh, I think sometimes uh, Michael Eisner might get credit for some of the stuff that actually Jeffrey uh, introduced into the parks. And right. so I thought that was really interesting. 
And maybe someday we'll talk to Jerry because Michael Eisner won't talk to anybody. So maybe <laughs> maybe Jeffrey Katzenberg will talk to us. <laughs> That's right. And how? Uh, oh. I, no, I was going to say. I was going to say. So we talked. So we talked about Back to Neverland. Uh, the stuff in the animation tour, and then that uh, because he did such a great job with that. There was a project that was kind of floundering a little bit uh, in Cranium Command, and so they asked him, "Hey, could you give us some opinions on that?" He said, I would probably do th these things. And they were like, great, go and do it. Uh, I, I was being very kind. It was terrible. And they, t and they was. told him it was terrible. And as soon as he saw it, he agreed, this is terrible. Uh, from the start of Cap uh, uh, Buzzy being Captain Cortex. I mean, who wants a, a hero or, or, or a focus of the ride being Captain Cortex? It's you know uh that just there was so much wrong with that show and uh he had i don't know weeks to fix it right i mean i i think it's another one of those situations where so in a day he had said this is what i would do they said go ahead and then he had they had six months until opening so they basically had to shoot all the live action all of the character bits that would appear in the screens the the facility itself this the stage that you would go in and watch it on was already pre was pre-done so that he couldn't touch but he could work within uh that framework and it made it such a fantastic show uh and again brought so much heart to it and emotion and uh that he is like a he has that knack like spielberg where he knows exactly like which dials on you to turn to make you feel the emotion that he wants you to yeah. feel uh he's so I good i was talking to him about uh, something and it was about one of the scenes in the chemistry room and cranium command when the kid's mixing stuff and he's like oh you know, when Annie turns a certain way, you can really understand her feeling the way that she looks at you. I was like, damn, you you got it. And you're absolutely right, Hal. He, he knows how to, to, like you said, dial it in uh, and, and attack senses, your, your visual as well as your audio, and, and, and be able to feel, right? It, it gets you dragged in. Um, it, Absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, to close off, um, he told us a, a lot about Alien Encounter. Um, he was originally brought in just to shoot the media portion of that, so the films. Uh, but again, the the show had some issues, and he was able to come in and then finally direct the the whole show, uh, where you were sitting down, and, and it was made so much better, and it, it really became the classic that we uh, that we know enough, and I and I think it's so interesting that you know not only is he great at like you know this heartwarming, charming stuff. It's like he he also can tap into what makes you scared, and they came up with techniques to to get the audience to scream even louder than that they had anticipated them to uh, when they were programming the show. So just fascinating, I, fascinating. I, guy. And I and I want to like Norm. And like so many of our guests, Jim Sarno, everybody that comes to these things. But Jerry was so kind and so gentle with everyone uh, that you understand why as a director, uh, he gets things out of actors that maybe other directors wouldn't. Uh, just because he just has this way about him. Uh, I sat next to him at dinner on Saturday night. You know, we had a, a dinner uh, after our sound check and after our meet and greet to host the folks that had flown in from California, and we wanted to have them with us and and uh, make sure that they that they 
you know, weren't eating, you know, uh, chicken fingers at the food court. <laughs> uh, so we offered to take them to dinner and, um, what, what a, just what a nice evening it was to just kind of chat about, you know, everything, you know, it wasn't really Hollywood stories or anything. It was just as the conversation would move along and Jerry would just tell anecdotes about life that you were sitting there saying, I could sit and listen to this man talk for mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very, very genuine. Very genuine. He's, he's like the polar opposite of Bob Gurr in terms of that ebullience uh where where bob you could listen to for days because bob is is like a tony robbins motivational speaker <laughs> when he's delivering you know his 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 stuff uh whereas uh, it'd be like swami jerry you yes. know you could just yeah. see him sitting there legs folded in front of a room full of 200 people telling you how to get more peace out of life exactly exactly um I think the last one that we can't, well, obviously we're going over everything here, but uh, how you also worked with Tammy Tucky, uh, our good friend there, uh, with George Wilkins on a musical panel. We had a musical number again, so uh, that was incredible. Yes, yeah, so what, a, what a great opportunity. And yet another person that I don't think has come out and done any uh, fan events, uh, like ever, ever. Um, <laughs> Ever. Uh, George is such an incredibly influential person. He was he was uh, originally hired by Buddy Baker to work on some uh, vocal arrangements for, oh my gosh, uh, the first thing he got hired to do was for Living with the Land. He also did the vocal arrangements for um, Making Memories. The, and uh, he had mentioned years before that he always wanted to work for Disney. Like he had this burning right. desire to work for Disney. And it just kind of never told, happened, right? Yeah. He told us this story that at the 64 World's Fair, he wrote some music for the Johnson Wax exhibit. Yes. Now, I've never seen it. I don't, I, I don't know it, anything it is, about the Johnson is, Wax. In but. fact, the Crawfords on the Progress City uh, radio live stream actually played a portion of it. And Michael said on the, on the broadcast, I don't know what the deal is in pandemic times, that if you visit – the Johnson Wax headquarters today, they still screen the film for visitors Wow! from the oh, 64 wow. World's Fair. Uh, but it, it, Wax, a it is online and you can see it and it is a bop. Let me tell you that. Okay, cool. So, uh, so he was doing that stuff and Buddy Baker got into a horrible car accident. And once he recovered to the point that people could talk to him, somebody from the Disney organization said, Buddy, we need who can do what you do. And he said, well, nobody. And they said, we'll find someone. And so they hired in George to basically be Buddy's protege. And he started uh, arranging Epcot Pavilion. So he did uh, you know, dozens of versions of It's Fun to Be Free, the arrangements for those. And, and I put together like a 12 or 14 different versions of It's Fun to Be Free in 40 seconds. I got to play those. So we got to really understand how arrangement works, which was, I thought that was cool. And that went over really well. Um, did a bunch of stuff for Imagination. And then he also composed things. So he wrote music for Horizons. He wrote New Horizons, the song that kind of like uh, replaced a Sherman Brothers song that that uh, that they had written for that. Uh, but super talented guy. What again? Just an absolute musical genius, and in, in every sense of the word. Uh, Tammy and Jeff Crawford performed uh, several songs. 
uh, that were really nice. You know, they were they were some things that we've we've heard in very uh, you know large arranged settings, but to just break it down to voice and piano uh, was just beautiful. So um, that was a real treat, and and they did a, a phenomenal job, and I, I think the audience really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was really neat. I, like, like there were some songs like they even did more from Sunny Eclipse than I ever heard in my life because I've never watched Sunny Eclipse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and it was funny how I had to jump on stage at one point because uh, I, I had done, uh, Wilkins had done his part and then I did Sarno and I had a uh, a grubby and Teddy Ruxpin with me and, and, and his uh, daughter-in-law comes over and says, oh, just so you know, you know, Mr. Wilkins, he, he wrote the songs for Teddy Ruxpin. So I ran back up on oh. stage. I completely forgot about that and, and said, I just great. wrote them. All 220 of them. That's a lot of Teddy Ruxpin. 220 pieces of music for Teddy Ruxpin and his friends. My That's God. amazing. Yeah, it is. That's so much. It's funny how many how there's this Disney Teddy Ruxpin connection now too, yeah. that we just yeah, have found the, about with Jim, Jim Sarno. Sarno had and, worked with Ken Fossey on uh, who was the creator of Teddy Ruxpin, and then we find out that George did the music and. Yeah. So, uh, and I just, I just wanted to say for, for those of you who are listening, so Tammy Tucky, um, you know, she, so good. Uh, and, and she had done an album of Disney, uh, songs before, which kind of is one of the reasons that we had her come on and do these. And she has just, uh, started up a new, uh, Indiegogo campaign to kickstart another crowdfunded album. So if you get a chance go to the Indiegogo website, I'm sure we'll leave, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, She's going to do another album of Disney songs. Uh, there was such a, a big response from the audience uh, after the performances saying, what are you going to do another album? What are you going to do another album? It was like, come on, Tammy, you got to do another one. Let's let's see if we can kickstart right. this. So I'm trying to help her out a little bit, but she's really taking the reins and uh, she's going to do this. She's, she's going to get another one going. So I'll put a link uh, in the show notes that you can go and visit and, and contribute and uh, help her get another album going. Well, while I promise a, a, a future episode soon on an attraction and we have a list of things to do, we may need to do a mini episode uh, just kind of plugging a few things because there's a lot of projects out there in addition to Tammy's. Uh, I talked to Tom Amin. Uh, it was funny when Todd put together, we had a 45-minute session after the stage was closed for people to meet and greet and mingle with the VIP guests and take in uh, Lake Buena Vista Village and all the other stuff there and just to kind of hang. And Todd put together this 45-minute string of music, which, by the way, included the Match Game theme song that uh, a lot of people appreciated, Todd. Oh, that was How's Ed. How, oh, how was I, that How's Ed? Yeah, because yeah, I, yeah, I, I heard you talking about it. So I, I, was it given, I was given Todd the credit for it. No, but, no, uh, no, that goes to How. But Tom Amin's music, uh, I, which is one of my favorites, he does these piano covers of Disney park music and other Disney music. Uh, people would come up to me and say, they said I should ask you, what's, who, what is this music? <laughs> and so I would tell them, Tom Amin, A-M-E-E-N. Tom had actually emailed us uh, shortly before Retro Magic and said, hey, I have a new album out. I'd love for you to listen to it and maybe if we could do a short, really quick chat about it because it's got more park music on it. And I said, listen, we're like retro magic 24-7 right now. Touch base with me after the event's over. And as any good uh, businessman and self-promoter would do, 
I was no sooner back in my office on Tuesday morning after Retro Magic <laughs> and an email appeal from, appeared from Tom Amin saying, hey, when can we schedule that quick chat? So I, 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 I think we want to do another mini episode soon where we can chat with Tammy a little bit about what she's trying to do, chat with Tom Amin. Uh, we got to talk to Jeff Blythe again about his fantastic book uh, about the wonders of China, uh, the first Circle Vision film that he did in China, which is if you haven't gotten the book yet, it is phenomenal. Uh, if you want to know everything that goes into some of these park things. So I think that's one of the things, uh, we'll do our own little mini retro magic, uh, plug for future pasts and, uh, present guests. Uh, cause there's a lot of projects going on. Uh, Jim Sarno's got some great art out there and stuff. So maybe a, a short little half hour in the next couple weeks where we can, chat about all that stuff and maybe yeah. with a few of the folks producing it. That'd be great. That'd be great. So once again, a big thank you to our friends, our family, our volunteers, and you as donors, um, you know, donated to make this possible. Um, we uh, broke we're even. Do, Let's call we're it that do way, it again. Right? We're, we're going to do, do it again, again. right, yeah. Todd? I, I'm, I'm still relaxing. I'm still decompressing. I, I'm ready to close <laughs> out the Retro right, Magic Todd? 50 right? channel. <laughs> when can we do this oh. again? Well, uh, yes. We're going we're gonna to use some more volunteers, and we're, we're, we're going to do it again. So we've, we are we've, looking we've at something. Our, yeah, we've got our target, our target time period, which would be, uh, I would say, mid to late winter of 2023 to celebrate Epcot's 40th, but we'll... Start working with uh, with Disney and maybe with not Disney, depending on how we can work out arrangements. But uh, we'll get a date out uh, sooner rather than later so people can, can put it on their calendars and we can start booking people because uh, right. Epcot's 40th deserves an appropriate celebration. And I've got a lot of ideas for that already, so I'm looking Look, I'm looking. That's weird. To I have a lot of ideas about it too, so it might have to be two days. That's... Oh boy! Oh boy! We're gonna need a bigger budget. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, thanks to everybody who come, who came. Uh, again, thanks to our volunteers, donors, friends, and families for helping us make this possible. Uh, it was an ac- excellent event. As Brian said, we'll be back to you uh, soon with a, a real podcast episode. We appreciate you understanding that there was a little bit of break and. Uh, attraction or, or you know really honed in and focused episodes but we were busy putting this show I, together i will say the last episode we put out before and if you've not listened to maelstrom yet i honestly believe it's the best episode we've ever done so if if you've not listened to the maelstrom episode yet go back and listen to it uh it was the last one we put out before this so i haven't even listened to it yet i gotta put that on tomorrow i've listened to it twice and i generally don't you know i listen to it for quality assurance and that's it and right Last week, since the the tragic passing of Gilbert Gottfried, and I don't get my Monday podcast from him anymore. Uh, last week, I was looking to fill some time in, and I saw that on my Apple Pod. Ah, let me listen to this again, oh, and on, it was over. And I said, "Boy, are. this is terrific!" You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely take a listen to it, check it out. So, all right, gentlemen. Well, we will uh, we will close the books here, at least with our fans on Retro Magic Fifty, and uh, we will be back. In, in a couple of weeks hopefully with some additional content and uh we also want to we also want to get a film night going because we've got a lot of new umatic tapes back uh we got some film uh we, we also got a wonderful film that was uh, from an auction uh titled opening walt disney world that turned out to be 25 minutes of undersea footage waves and a man on a boat fishing 
<laughs> it was like one of those meditation films or tapes they used to put out. Exactly. We could do some, what was that? Deep thoughts. Jack, Jack Candy. Candy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we did send that back and uh, hopefully we'll get a little money back on that one. But anyway, well, thanks. Thank you much, gentlemen. Appreciate this look back at Retro Magic. And with that, we'll talk to everybody soon. Thank you very much. And Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at retrowdw.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at retrowdw. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at wdwms, Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at goawaygreen, JT Couser on Twitter at LS1JT and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt, 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Yeah.